Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Let's see how much of this we get covered tonight, but that is my desire to try to cover a chunk of this tonight. Philippians 1, verses 12 through 26. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, and much, and, and much are bold, and are much bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. All right, that's the section we're going to try to jump at and unpack tonight. Look again at what he says here in, in verse 12 and following. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And that's what we're going to deal with to start off with here. Paul's imprisonment has served to advance the gospel? That's not what Satan had in mind. You know, Satan's purposes for having him put in prison was to shut him up. But Paul says, I want you to understand that what, what has happened to me in my imprisonment here has served to advance the gospel. Now, we're going to get into the how and the why in a second. But first, I want to just kind of point out to you that we as Christians need to really understand who's really in control. I mean, yes, Satan is the ruler of this world. Yes, he has been given authority for a time. Yet, above that, God is still ultimately in control. And even though Satan is working out his plans and his schemes, God is able, because he's even more powerful, to take what Satan's going to do. And by the way, Satan can't come up with a plan God doesn't already know about. He, God will never say, oh, I didn't expect that one. Oh, that's a curveball I didn't see coming. God doesn't swing and miss. All right? With whatever Satan throws at him, God didn't say, oh, I've never seen a screwball before. You know, that's, everything that Satan has intended, God will sometimes stop. Other times he'll let it through. But God will then, for his children, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those that love God, he will cause it to work for good. And he'll orchestrate it and turn it around back on Satan for his glory and for our good. Well, take it for example, John. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. Now, if you do even a study of John, if you even do a little bit of historical background, there's some traditional stories about the fact that some say that, that he was boiled in oil and the oil didn't even burn him. And, and there was this belief that John was never going to die. Because you know how Jesus had said to Peter, what if I want him to remain alive until I return? What's that to you? And this tradition started to spread among the Christians that John was never going to die. And actually, if these stories that we see from history, not, not biblical stories, but extra biblical stories, are actually true, it made it look like he wasn't going to die. So what do they do? They exile him on this prison island 
out in the middle of the water so they have no contact with anybody. What happens? Jesus shows up on the island and says, hey, I got a job for you while you're out here. Sit down and write something. And you're going to, what you're about to get from me is going to go to the whole ends of the earth. Go to Revelation chapter 10. Let me show you something here. Revelation chapter 10. Verses 8 through 11. Revelation chapter 10, verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again. We know who that is. Saying, go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and, to and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Here John, the world and Satan thinks they're going to push him out there in this island. Can't kill him, but we're going to put him out on this island and he'll be, he'll be inconsequential. But while he was there, what does God do? He works out his plan and turns it into a chance for him to be given the vision of how it's all going to play out. And this book is still here to this day. And the whole world knows about the book of Revelation, whether they believe it or not. They know about it. What about Genesis chapter 50? Go to Genesis chapter 50. Every generation knows about Revelation. They sure do. Generation, uh, sorry, generation. Genesis chapter 50. Look at verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to him. Now, if you don't know the context of this, Joseph, as you know, was beat up by his brothers. They were thrown into a well. They told his dad that, that he had been killed by a wild animal. And they sold him as a slave. He was in, the, was in the slavery. And then he ended up in the dungeon. And then by God's plan and God's orchestration, everything he had told Joseph was going to happen, happened. 20 years down the road from when he told him, he became second in command in all of Egypt. And by that... The world in that area was spared and all the lives were spared because of the famine that was coming because he knew how to take care of to get ready before then. And as you know, his own family was protected and they came to Egypt. And when dad dies, their brothers are like, oh, baby, now this guy who's I mean, he's like right next to Pharaoh. <laughs> now, dad's not around. He's going to get us. And he said, you still don't get it. You meant it for evil. But look at what it says here. It doesn't say God used it. Does it? It said God meant it for good. In other words, yes, Satan had a plan. God knew the plan before Satan orchestrated the plan. And God 
allowed Satan to execute the plan. He didn't stop it. That means God had a purpose. Therefore, Satan's plan, listen closely, now became God's plan. That's something we got to understand. Erwin uh, uh, Lutzer, pastor of Moody Church, preaches a wonderful sermon called God's Satan. And how God uses Satan for his purposes. Satan does what Satan does by his own will and his own accord. Yet at the same time, God being sovereign can orchestrate and use what Satan has in mind for his purposes. Amen. Folks, this is where we're going in this whole book if you haven't caught this by now. That's why Paul's sitting in prison and he is okay. That's why we can look you in the eye and what we're going through as a family right now say, we're going to be all right. We are all right. It's not a bad time, but it'll be good. It's good now. Because God is still in control. He won't be good down the road. He's good at all times. And even in the midst of the struggle, we may not understand, but understand this. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Because God is ultimately in control. Now, in this situation, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So first, I want you to understand what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. Keep that in mind. See, again, like I said before, and you'll hear me beat this into your brains and my prayers that the Spirit of God actually has it take root. You can't be a negative person if you're truly a born-again Christian. And you are lead, letting the Spirit of God have control. You can't be a negative person if you're a born-again Christian, listen, and you're letting the Spirit of God have control. Now, you can be a born-again Christian and be negative, but you're walking in the flesh. You're looking at life with man's eyes. I'm not saying you're not saved if you're negative. Please don't hear me say that. I'm not saying if you're negative, you're not saved. I'm saying you're not walking in the Spirit and allowing the Spirit of God to have control. Because if you really believe that the Spirit of God is in control and that God's Word is true and that God is who He is, you can look at every situation like Paul says, and hey guys, this is all right. You're going to see it. He's going to keep right on going through this whole section we're in tonight. Keep on saying, yeah, I know it looks bad. I know it even makes me look bad, but it's going to be good. Yeah, I don't even know what's going to really happen to me. I might even die, but either way, it's cool. And so I want you to understand, let the Spirit of God speak to your heart right now. I want you to hear, do I look at everything as half full or half empty? Who's really in control right now? Is it Christ in my life or is it my flesh? So we see that what Satan meant for evil, God used for good. But how? How in the world does Paul being thrown in prison advance the gospel? Well, actually, here in the context, it actually tells us and answers that question. First of all, he says in verse, uh, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. All right, now that's the first part. In other words, word has spread throughout the whole Roman imperial guard that Paul's imprisonment was because of his faith in Christ. In other words, you know full well, when someone's in prison, what's the question people always want to ask? What'd they do? What's he in for? You know, what's his crime? Well, by the time Paul finally gets to Rome, I don't know if you know it or not, but he didn't just quietly sneak into Rome. If you go back and do a study from his arrest in Rome, when they're starting to beat him, and he says, oh, whoa, whoa, hang on, are you allowed to beat a Roman citizen without a trial? From that moment on, 
Paul goes through this journey of trials to Agrippa and to Herod and all these people, and he have then, he's then before all these bigwigs in the Roman authority, and he makes his appeal to Caesar, and they said, wait, we're going to let you go, but since you appealed to Caesar, we have no, no choice now. We have to, by the law, take you to Caesar. And in that whole process, he goes through this journey, and then he's on this prison barge with all these other prisoners, and, and then the shipwreck. But before the shipwreck, as the storm is coming, Paul stands up and says, hey, if you all will listen, if you stay with the ship, no one will die. How do you know that, Paul? Well, the angel of the Lord whom I serve came and stood by me and he told me that the ship's going to blow up, but pretty much everybody that's on the boat's going to make it. And we're going to run aground on some island. Of course, as you know, that, that literally happened. As they get to the island, he's helping make a fire. What happens then? As he's helping to make a fire, a viper comes out of that fire and the Bible says it fastened on his hand. And he just went, huh, shook it off and kept right on going. And then everybody stood back to watch him puff up and die. And when he didn't, they thought he was a god. And then they found out that the king of that island was sick. And he went and healed him. And by the time he gets to Rome, folks, you got to understand, word has spread about this guy. This short guy that doesn't look like much. His speech wasn't really eloquent. But there's something about this guy. And what's he, what did he do? What's he in for? And word has spread that his crime was he believed that Jesus was God himself. And because of that, people were saying, who's Jesus? Who had never heard? Others were saying, I'd heard about him, but I'd like to hear a little bit more. And you see that happening everywhere he goes. Because of his imprisonment and because of what had happened to him. See, when we hear what has happened to him, we think it was just the imprisonment. No, word had spread that there's something different about this guy and God's with him and God's doing something. And because of that, his imprisonment actually had served to advance the gospel. Can you imagine if Paul had tried to go preach here and tried to go preach there? Say if he just went and knocked on Agrippa's door. Said, hey, I want to preach to you about Jesus. Probably wouldn't have gone over too well. He might have been arrested. But if he tries to go and preach at Herod or say he takes a boat to this island. Well, because of all the things that were going on and the way that God orchestrated it to us, I mean, think about this. I, I've actually preached the whole message on that section there in Acts 28 where Paul stands up and says, oh, and we must run aground on some island. Think about that. He just backhandedly, offhandedly described a shipwreck. Oh, yeah, we're going to be shipwrecked, but don't worry about that. We hear shipwreck and we think, shipwreck? But Paul referenced the shipwreck as, ah, we'll be running aground on some island. Because his view was that God was in control and God's got it. Folks, let me just tell you, I am blowing smoke when you come to me and say, we're sorry about your dad. And when I say to you, we're good. We really are good. Because all through this whole journey, our eyes have been on God. We're good. Oh, we thank you for your prayers. We thank you for your comfort. We pray that you'll be there if you're able to at that day when we worship and celebrate the Lord and honor my dad's life. And we talk about it and have that memorial service. It's, I'll tell you one thing. It's going to be a cool worship service. It'll be one you don't want to miss. Yet at the same time, we can honestly say we don't grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We're okay. Then he also said this. He said, the brothers also have become more bold to speak of their faith in Christ. Wouldn't you think that if someone preached about Christ and they got thrown in prison, most everybody would go, Ooh, we're going to keep our mouths quiet. But actually, what happened to him has caused them to become more bold. How in the world does this cause them to become more bold? If you're not looking at it, if you're just looking at the imprisonment, you'll miss it. Remember everything I just told you that he went through? In all of those places, the power of God was being demonstrated because Paul was obedient 
Because Paul didn't try to finagle in his own human flesh to make this work out. Because Paul didn't try to crunch the numbers and make it work out. Paul just trusted the Lord and did what he asked him to do. And he trusted God. Because of that, God's power then was demonstrated in each of those places. I'm not recommending that you go stick your hand in a viper hole. But if God chooses to allow one to bite you, shake it off. But how do we really react when... Satan, who is called the serpent, is allowed to bite us. Oh, it might just be an illness. It might be a stroke. How do we react? We, did something wrong. we feel like we've done something wrong. Fight, fright. Fight, fright. Flee. Have we forgotten that my God will cause all things to work for good for those who love him? Jesus. For those who are his child and love him and are called according to his purpose? If this has happened to me and I am his child, guess what? God's got a purpose and God's got a plan and therefore I will rejoice. God's got it. How does it say, um, count it pure joy, my brethren, when you face different kinds of trials? But that's not our typical reaction. It might just be something little like a, like a car breakdown. Or, and then by the time you, oh, I'm going to pay for this. I don't have the money for this. And then God does a miracle. And then, then the washing machine goes. And oh, come on. When are we going to start to really believe that God is in control and he's for us? Now, please don't hear me come across like I never react that way. I have good days and bad days. But my prayer is that I'm progressing in my faith. But because of the fact that Paul was willing to walk in obedience to God and leave the results to him, God was then able to demonstrate his power. And when God demonstrates his power, people want to listen. Is, they notice. Well, isn't that why whenever they went out to go preach the gospel where it hadn't been heard, God allowed them by his power to perform signs and wonders? We see them in the Bible. Now, I don't believe that we're going to see as many signs and wonders as we did in the early part of Acts in the beginning of the spread of the gospel. But trust me, I don't believe the Bible teaches that those are done. There are those who try to say that God's not doing miracles like that anymore. That's not what the Bible says. They're even trying to use 1 Corinthians 13 to say that those kinds of things have ceased. But if you look at the context of 1 Corinthians 13, it's talking about heaven. One day we'll get there. And when that happens, we won't need prophecy. We won't need all these kind of things. They will cease. But until then... I believe God's still able to do those things, but most of us today aren't even willing to take that step of obedience when we don't know how it's going to work out and we don't trust God. Or if he says you'll go on the ground on some island, we say that must not be God's will. Because if it doesn't work out perfectly the first time, it must not be the will of God. Folks, let me just tell you, what do you think he's telling you to do? And you just walk through that door and you do what you believe he's leading you to do and you watch how God will demonstrate himself in your life and your neighbors and your people at your work, whoever it is, they're going to say there's something different about you. We want to listen to what you have to say about this Jesus. The reason why some of the brothers or much of the brothers were able to be more bold now is because by Paul being obedient, God demonstrated his glorious power. And by doing so, more people all of a sudden said, I want to listen. They paid attention. You don't have to go and deal with snake bites or drinking poison or anything like that, like it says at the end of Mark 16. But you can tell you this much. You could just trust God in the situation you're going through. Because I can promise you that there are people around you that are going through the same kind of trials you're facing. And then what the Bible says, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Mm -hmm. 
But if we react the same way the world and those who don't know Christ react, how are they going to see the power of God? How are they going to see the power of God? Paul then took a moment to point out that not everyone who was preaching the gospel was doing it with pure motives. He said, look at what it says here in uh, verse uh, 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, those who do it out of goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, those who do it out of envy, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, before we get to his reaction, I want you to understand what's going on. There were people out there that were preaching the gospel, and these different groups were both mentioning Paul. Some were using Paul as a wonderful illustration. Others were mentioning Paul as a, quote-unquote, bad illustration. And the ones who were using Paul as a bad illustration were trying to make him look bad. They're saying that he was in prison because he was doing it wrong, you know. Trust me, are there not Christians who will say, well, if you do it the right way, this is what's going to get you... They haven't read the book. Thank you. That's right. There's no formula and God may not duplicate methods. You know, I want you to understand. Listen, but there were those who were preaching. There were those who were preaching and saying, look, Paul has been obedient. Paul is the, you know, look what God's doing in Paul's life. And they were sharing the gospel and they were magnifying Paul. There were others who were preaching the gospel and they were trying to tear Paul down. By the way, let me just tell you, if you think you have to build yourself up by tearing someone else down, you're really not building yourself up, are you? <laughs> you're just staying where you are at best by tearing someone else down. And not only that, as he said, they're preaching, their, their motives for preaching were selfish ambition and trying to make me look bad. They're trying to afflict me. Now, look closely at Paul's reaction. What does it say? Well, look at the end of the uh, 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 middle of uh, verse uh, 18. I rejoice. Wait a minute, Paul. You just said there were people out there that were talking about bad about you and trying to make you look bad. He said, yeah, but they're preaching the gospel. The gospel's powerful whether your motives are right or wrong. You heard me say last week that Jonah did not want the people of Nineveh to respond. Yet the gospel's powerful. God's word is powerful. In the same way, Paul said, you know what? There are people out there that love me, and they're mentioning my situation, and they're actually saying good things. There are others out there who are preaching the gospel who are using me as a bad example to try to make me look bad. I don't care. Now, i got to be honest with you. This has been something that God's been using in my life. Because I'm going to be honest with you. We all struggle with pride in some way or another. Pride manifests itself in lots of ways. There are some people whose pride is because they think they're better than somebody. I honestly don't have that kind of pride. I don't think I'm better than you. But there's another kind of pride. My pride is, I want everybody to think I'm great. It's subtle, but there's a difference. I really don't think I'm better than somebody. I really don't. But I sure want everybody to think well of me. And in ministry, that's a hard thing. Because you'll find yourself wanting to make everybody happy. And if you follow Christ, the Bible says very clearly, not everybody will be happy. If we're going to be faithful to him and faithful to the word, there are going to be those who are offended. There are going to be those who are upset. There are going to be those who, well, as I had to learn to deal with in ministry, if I only do what God has for me to do and not what people have for me to do, if I wear the yoke that Jesus has for me and I will find the light yoke and the easy burden, but I've got a lot of other people that would like to put a yoke on me because they expect me because I'm a minister to be a certain way and do a certain thing. I literally went through this today in the chaos of all that's going on in my life right now. There was a half an hour 
between when I finished preaching and meeting with the pastor at, at the Central and when I had to meet my brother at his apartment when he got off of work to go talk to the apartment complex about what we're going to do with my brother now after dad's died and what we're going to have, we're going to keep him in his apartment, we're going to move him, how he's going to pay his rent, these kind of things. I had a half an hour and I didn't have time to go home. I thought, what am I going to do for that half an hour? And my brain said, my clubs are always in the back of my car. I could go over to the Melbourne Golf Course on 192 and just putt a couple. I could just go there, take a deep breath, and just putt a couple. And it would have been refreshing. But you know what my first thought was? People are going to drive by, see my car, see me putting on the green, and think that I'm playing. And my fear was what people would think. Paul had gotten to a point where he wasn't, I don't care, in the sense of rudeness. But his focus was on Christ, not on himself. And I hope to get to that point someday. By the way, I didn't. No, I drove slow. <laughs> but let me just tell you, isn't it sad how we've grown up in that kind of an era in the church where people make judgments? You know, I talked to you earlier, just made a little reference about the fact we might try to do a cruise. And it's sad how you're afraid when you, when you are blessed with a cruise, you don't want to tell anybody because the typical reaction of the other Christians is sure wish I could have a cruise. Even the Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. We're afraid to tell people when good things happen. Oh, we don't mind sharing the bad stuff because that makes us, everybody likes us. Oh good, you're, you're having bad stuff too. But when God does neat things, we have a hard time telling that, don't we? Paul, though, said, I don't care whether or not I look bad or I look good if Christ is being preached. And that kind of attitude is also kind of like heaping coals. It does heap coals on their heads. But you've got to get them off of yours first. Absolutely. He rejoiced. Now, go to John chapter 3, and you'll see this wonderful attitude in John the Baptist. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also, Mrs. John the Baptist, was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, meaning Jesus, Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. In other words, uh, you know, you used to have big crowds, but they're starting to go after this other guy now. Look at John's reaction. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who is the, is the, has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine, joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Uh, they came and said, hey, do you realize this guy's getting a bigger crowd? John says, good, he's supposed to. It's not about me. It's about him. Are we willing to let Jesus be in such control that we don't really worry what other people think about us and we only just accept the role that we have? You see, this is one of the things in the church today that I need to help you understand. The American, the American um, 
mentality is to move up the ladder. There's nothing wrong with you desiring to move from sweeping floors to maybe working in the office and so on in your, in your job. But please understand something. The Bible doesn't teach this mentality of you can become president if you want to. The Bible teaches to find what it is that God has created for you to be and to do it and enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, do you have more for me? But if he says this is all, to embrace it. Yeah, being content. We're going to get there. As you're going to see, this whole book ties all together where he even talks about that. But that's the whole point. John says, my role is to be the bride, uh, sorry, the, 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 the best man, if you will. The bridegroom is the one whose bride belongs to. These people aren't here for me. These people are here for them. Yet how often do we in ministry struggle when somebody's church is bigger? Be content with where it is that you are. Now, um, look at what he goes on and says now next, though, in the Philippians here. We've got to keep moving. Verse 19, or the end of verse 18, See, yes, I will, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, hang on for a second. Uh, Paul then now continues to rejoice and says that he knew his imprisonment would end in his being delivered. How did he know? Did he, did he, uh, had he been given a promise like before during the shipwreck? You know, because in the shipwreck, the angel came and said, here's what's going to happen. You're not going to die. And they're all, all the people in the boat are going to be spared. You're going to end up on an island. But here in this situation, he says, I know I'm going to be delivered. That's a, okay, that's a part of it. But you but, but you got to understand. Let me ask you again. From the context, how did he know? Now, I'm going to come back to that. And we'll deal with what you just brought up, Allison, and, 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 and Susan, what you brought up as well. Let's deal with that word deliverance first. But we're going to come back. And I'm going to show you, by the end of this section, he actually did know. He actually did know that he'd be delivered. We'll get to that, that in a second. But let's deal with his deliverance first. First of all, his definition of deliverance might be different from yours and mine. His definition of deliverance was, whatever God's got in mind, that's my deliverance. Whether I stay in this life or whether I go to be with him, I'll be delivered. If I stay in this life, I'll be delivered. If I go to be with him, I'll be delivered. Vance Havner, uh, if you've ever read any of his writings, when his wife got very sick, he sought the Lord and prayed and prayed and one day he was reading in John chapter 11 where Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. And he took it as a word from God and he was so excited. And he was, he just, he was relieved and he had gotten his word that this will not end in death. And it wasn't long after that that his wife died. And it rocked him for a while. Until then he realized that the sickness didn't end in death. <laughs> if you kept reading in that same section in John chapter 11, he who lives and believes in me will never die. Yes, she might have died on this earth, but it didn't end in death. But he kind of... He tweaked it a little bit to fit his desires. Paul said, look, either way is good. Well, let's read it. Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through 26. Let me read it to you again. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full, full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, 
I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul was so focused on Jesus being the center of his life that whatever Jesus chose to do with him was okay with him. Well, he knew that they were praying for him. He knew they were praying for him. Prayer of other people praying for us mm -hmm. through difficult situations also. That's definitely a part of it. But, but here's the thing as well. Keep in mind, just because someone's praying for you doesn't mean you'll be, in our definition, exactly. delivered. I said it right. increases our confidence. Confidence, exactly. Because we know that people are praying for us and we're praying and the focus is on God. God's going to do what God's going to do. And that does give you a tremendous confidence. And so we pray for the peace of Christ. So when we know that we're in his will, we do have that peace through that difficult situation to keep us moving forward. Exactly. With confidence. That's it. That's it. Exactly. And see, that's the attitude of his heart. You see it there. He says, look, if I stay in the body, because right now at that moment, as he was saying this, I'm wrestling with this. If I stay in the body. That means more fruitful labor, which is very good, because God's going to reward me in eternity for what it is that he does through me. That's, I'm getting, I, you know, I'm just stocking up more overtime, if you will. If I die, I get to go be with Jesus, which is even better by far. And he goes, well, I'll be honest with you, I'm torn between the two. I'm torn between the two. Now, I'm going to make a statement here to you along this line here. When Jesus is the center, you trust him and you don't manipulate him. See, a lot of us think we have Jesus at the center. But how we react will show us whether or not we really do. Let me give you a couple examples real quick. Go to Luke chapter 10. Look at verses 38 through 42. 38. Mm -hmm. Luke 10, 38 through 42. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do not care that my sister has left me to serve alone. Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. We're not going to deal with the whole context here or the whole section. But there's something here I want to point out. Martha welcomed Jesus and served Jesus. But she also bossed him around. Did she not? I mean, she told him what she thought he should do. It's, I wrote in my notes here. Did she really understand the term Lord? Because she says Lord, and then she bosses him around. There's a tendency for all of us to fall into this. There's nothing wrong. I'm going to show you in a second here. There's nothing wrong with having a desire, a will. There's nothing wrong with us saying, here's what I'd like it to be. But even though she appeared to be making Jesus the center, she welcomed him into her home. She was serving him. She was telling him how it should be done. Go to Mark chapter 14. Sometimes the difficulty is come boldly before the throne with your requests. And yeah, well, and like I say, there's nothing wrong with boldness. And you're about to see in Jesus, he came before the throne with boldness. Look at Jesus in Mark 14, 32 through 36. So they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass for him. And he said, Abba, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. I know you can do this. Remove this cup from me. Sounds like Martha. 
Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Do you understand? See the difference? Martha was okay with saying, Lord, I think you should be doing this, yet you're in charge. That part was left off. Jesus had to remind her that that part was left off. You're, you're, you're still thinking, you're worried about a lot of stuff. I'm still in control here. Jesus did the same kind of thing as Martha. Lord, this is, <laughs> everything's powerful you. I mean, you're all powerful. Everything's within your control. Please take this cup away. Nevertheless, if you choose not to, I'm okay with it. We need to tell God how we feel. I've told people over the years, you want to know the will of God or you want to yield to the will of God, you've got to first acknowledge your will. Jesus never taught us to pray, whatever you have in mind, God. Jesus didn't say, hey, what God's going to do, God's going to do. Do not take this message of the sovereignty of God and Him being ultimately in control and turn it into one of those wishy-washy Christians that say, hey, whatever God's going to do, God's going to do. I'm okay. Either way, I'm fine. Whatever God chooses, I'm good. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. You have a will. God's given you a will. He's given you a desire. And there's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, this is what I'd like. You can almost picture, if you look at the story of Job, where the Bible says, he said, naked I came into the world, naked I'll return, and I just worship God. As you get further on, he starts to start opening up a little bit. Yeah, he sure looks awesome, but keep reading, folks. This one starts to say, it's not, I wish I'd never been born. There's more hope for a tree. You cut a tree down, at least a shoot comes back. What is there for man? You can almost picture God saying, now we're getting somewhere, Job. Oh, I've known all along that kind of stuff is there because you're just as human as everybody else, even though everybody puts you up as a superman. You're just as human as everywhere else. Now we're getting somewhere. And now in the midst of this, I can take you to a deeper understanding of who I am. Because that same guy that said, I wish I'd never been born, what hope is there for a man, is the one who said, I know I shall see him in my flesh. I will see him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But he had to go through that struggle. Folks, do not turn into one of those Christians that say, ah, whatever, God's good, I got it. And he's got it, and I don't care. No, no, no. You still hang on to what you want. You still come boldly before the throne. You go to a God that you believe is for you, and you share with him your desires and your wishes. Sometimes we don't have because we don't ask. James chapter 4. He'll teach us the right way to ask. Exactly. He'll teach us the right way to ask. He wants you to be honest with him. I want my kids to be honest with me. Oh, Daddy, whatever you want. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Wouldn't we love to hear our kids say that? I really don't. I want you to tell me what you want and have an attitude that says I'm still able to do what I want. But you tell me what you want. I say that to my wife all the time. Just tell me what you want. <laughs> That's another whole message for another time. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said our God is able to rescue us from this fire, but whether he will or not, we don't know. Paul said, it's almost like God was giving him a choice. Isn't that interesting? He said, what, what will I choose? I think there are times that God actually lets us choose. Because he knows he can orchestrate however we choose. And he even knows which way we'll choose. But there's an element here where, where we've got a little bit more freedom in our relationship with the Father. He is a Father. He wants us to get real with him. Tell him, I don't know what you're going through. I don't, you don't know all the stuff that I'm going through. But I can tell you this, you're going through stuff. And God's using it to shape you and to mold you. Be willing to have an attitude that says he's all in control and whatever he does is good. Yet don't give up your desire to say, here's what I sure like, Daddy. Yet you're in charge, and I'm not, but I'm praying still. And I'm going to keep on asking. I'm going to keep on seeking. I'm going to keep on knocking. And I'm going to keep going to you until you absolutely tell me no. 
But until then, you know my heart. I do trust you, whatever you do. But I'm also not going to turn into one of those Christians that's phony. I would like to see things happen a certain way. And when I open up and share how I'm really feeling, you could use that to teach me some things about me that you know that I don't know. Or actually, you'll start to see, I'll learn something about you that I don't know and how you react. Be real with God. Be real with God. You ever read the book of Habakkuk? Habakkuk cries out to God and pretty much says this. It's only just three chapters. You need to read it. It's so cool. In chat, three chapters in the book of Habakkuk, he says, God, um, the righteous are suffering, the wicked are prospering, and I don't think you're paying attention. <laughs> he literally, you, you double check me. That's pretty much what he says. I don't think you're watching. God says, I am watching and I'm going to do something about it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send the Babylonians to take you Israelites captive because of your wickedness. Yeah, <laughs> but actually, let me paraphrase it for you, but Habakkuk pretty much says something along the lines of this. He says, how can you justify that? I just said the righteous are suffering and the wicked are prospering. Your response is to have a more wicked nation prosper even more by taking us captive and us righteous are going to suffer even more. That doesn't make sense. Yet you get to chapter three and God says, I'm in control and I'm going to do something and one day they're going to get theirs. And he says, I will wait patiently then and trust you in this. Man. By the way, Habakkuk's name means embracer of God. Embracer of God. But he was real with God. Be real with God, but let God be God. Paul says, I'm sitting here in prison wrestling. If I stay in this flesh, I'm going to get more reward. That's, that's not a bad thing. I'm kind of excited about that idea because he believed God's reward was real and he was storing it up. Yet at the same time, if, I, if, I, if, if, if this is it, if this is the end, I get to go with, be with Christ. And I've already seen him a little bit, either in the body or out of the body, I don't know. He taught me face to face for those three years in Arabia. That would be even better. Yet, the more I pray about this, the more that I sense my answer is that he's going to keep me here. Oh, and by the way, that is what happened. This was his first imprisonment in Rome, and he was released. By the way, you do realize that God's glorified even in death? God's glorified even in death. Jesus, when it was time for him to go, in John chapter 12 said, What shall I say, Father, save you from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came. Father, glorify yourself. Get glory through my death. And I love how God spoke out loud right then and said, I have and I will again. In John chapter 11, you know, in the story of raising Lazarus from the dead, he said that he's going to die, but this sickness will not end in death for God's glory. Folks, let me just tell you, God has been glorified in my father's death. But now listen closely. You're going to listen for the story, how the, the, the nurse got saved and all this kind of stuff. No, no, no. You're looking at it wrong. God does those things as well. Please don't hear me minimizing that. But you know how the fact, you know how God's glorified in my father's death? He's not dead. Amen. He's glorified in my father's death because my father's not dead. Because of Christ, he's alive. Because of Christ, my father included, throngs are worshiping him because of what he's done. Because of him, we can say, we're okay. 
because of those who are in him, even though they physically die, they will never die. My father never died. Oh, his body stopped working. But just like God, you heard me say this before, just like a baby's in a womb and it passes from the world that it knows right into the next bigger and greater world, it starts to learn to breathe in a whole new way. But the baby didn't die in the process, did it? No, the world it knew became a greater and better world. The baby just passed from one to the other and just learned to breathe in a whole new way. I think, honestly, God's given us childbirth as a picture of going from this life to the next. He never died. He just went from this life to the better one, and he learned to breathe in a whole new way. He's just as alive as he has ever been, if not more. And God's glorified in that because the only way that could happen to any of us is because of Jesus himself, who took on flesh, was punished in our place, rose from the dead by his own power, and said, I'll give that to anybody that believes I'm who I am. Because my father believed, father believed he's not dead. Go to Philippians chapter 4. If you're a person whose life is centered on Jesus Christ and you trust him to control all things, you can be rejoicing in each and every situation because you believe God's in control and that he's working all things for the good for those who love him. Listen to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. He's talking to them about their gift to him. But he says a couple of things in there that are kind of cool. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord great. By the way, has anybody notice that that's a big word that he's been using a lot? And we haven't even gotten half of Philippians yet. Where do you see how often he uses the word rejoice? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Whether I have a lot, I'm good. If I have nothing, I'm fine. Why? Because I've got Jesus and he supplies all of my needs. And if there's a lot, that's wonderful. And if it, there's a little, it hasn't changed anything because Jesus is still the center of my life. But many of us, myself included, still struggle with that feeling good when there's money, feeling bad when there's not, feeling good when things are going well, feeling bad when things aren't. We think God's with us when things are going well. We think God left us when things are going bad. Paul had understood who God really is. He understood the reality of Christ in him. He understood the fact that he was worshiping him on a 24-hour basis, and his focus was on him. And it doesn't, he says, I thank you for your gift. But actually, I'm, and he goes on later and says, I'm thinking more about what's going to be credited to your account because of your giving to, to my ministry. He said, I'm not speaking because I'm in need. Even if there was a need, I'm not worried about you meeting my need. I need to talk to the men real quick. Some, some of men in our churches today have this mindset that they're responsible to provide for their families. Let me say something to you that you hopefully understand, but if you don't, please hear it now. You can't provide for your family. You're not supposed to provide for your family. You're to do what God says to do, but you are to be trusting that God is the one who's going to pay the bills. And the moment you start thinking it's up to you, you're in trouble. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 17, sorry, chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. God clearly spoke to the nation of Israel and he said, uh, 
Do not say to yourself, my arm or the strength of my right hand has gotten this wealth for me. It is God who determines whether or not you make money. Let me just say something to you all. I thank you for those of you that, that donate to Just a Preacher Ministries. But if everybody stopped giving, we'd still eat. I'm so wearied as I travel listening to pastors who are looking at the economy and saying, oh, things are tough. Since when did the economy ever affect God? Yeah. Oh, but Jim, people are unable to... You're still looking in the wrong place. I talk to older pastors who say, well, I'm in my 60s. No church will ever hire me now. And I ask them nicely, when did God die? Because as far as I understand, he's the one who determines where we go next. You're acting like he's not in control of that. Well, man, that's just how... So man is bigger than God. You understand? Folks, it's crept into our pulpits. It's crept into a lot of us. Some of us are just as guilty. We keep thinking and looking at things with man's eyes. I know what the word says, but look at... Paul writes to us from prison saying, I've learned the secret, folks. I've learned the secret. God is in me, for me, in control, and he uses everything for his purposes. Even if Satan means it for evil, even if people are out to get me, I'm going to be okay. Even if the bank account looks like it's not going to make it, we're going to be okay. And we need to keep going forward, understanding that God is in control. And I'm going to leave you with one last little thing. Well, you got five minutes. Actually, we started late. You got maybe seven minutes. Let me give you two things. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. You see, Paul, at this point in our section of Philippians, came to realize as he was praying about it and listening to the Lord, he says, I know that actually I'm going to be released so that uh, you'll see me again. And that is what happened. But in 2 Timothy, the last book that he wrote, and by the way, in prison again in Rome, this time it was not a house. It was not like the first imprisonment. He was in a cell this time and things weren't real good. And, and uh, he didn't make it out of this imprisonment. And one of the ways we can tell this is a second imprisonment, those of you who are here for the first part of our Philippian study, it starts off, Paul and who? Timothy. Timothy was there with him in that first imprisonment in Rome, remember? He wasn't a co-author, but he was a co-sender. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, peace, and grace and peace and mercy. Mercy, <laughs> I can't even get it out. Grace and peace and mercy. Listen, in this letter, he's writing to Timothy, just like First Timothy. He's in his second imprisonment now, and he actually is not in the same situation. And in this time, he's dealing with whether or not he's going to make it out of this prison as well, just like he does in chapter in, in Philippians, in chapter one of Philippians. But go to chapter four and look at verses six through eight. Second Timothy chapter four, verses six through eight. He says, "For I am already being poured out as a drink offering." And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. At this point, he knows this is the end. The Spirit has already revealed it to him. He knows he's not getting out of this one, and this is it, and he's good. He's ready. In Philippians 1, he wasn't sure. He wasn't sure if he's going to be released or if not. And I'm not sure. I'm torn. Do I stay in the body? That's more reward. If I go with the Lord, that's even better. 
the more I pray about this, the more, you know what? The Spirit of God revealed to him that he was going to be released. And he said, I'm going to come see you again. And it happened. But later on, in another prison, God revealed that that was the end. And he was good. He was good. Pretty much he just said, I'm ready. I'm ready. I can honestly tell you, my dad, that was his attitude. Now, he, he had a wish. Those of you that know my dad and talk to my dad since my mom died, I got to be honest with you. <laughs> we wonder sometimes if he was wanting to see Jesus as much as he wanted to see mom. He missed mom. And over this past year and a month or two since mom died, we've had many talks. He said, why am I still here? I took him to Acts chapter 13, verse 36, where David's preaching about, uh, sorry, Paul's preaching about David. And he says, when David had served God's purpose in his generation, he died. I said, look, that's up to God and that's not up to you. You're still here. God has a reason. Has, well, I don't know what it is. That doesn't mean that God doesn't have a purpose. And you need to be faithful to keep doing what it is that you believe he wants you to do. And you keep becoming the person he wants you to be. And you just let God take care of that. And what happened in my dad's death, even though I wish personally Jim Johnson could have made it back in time. I'm trying to get flights home. It just wasn't working out. And God gave my wife and I a piece that we just stick with plan A. We tried. And I thought I was going to see him one more time. But I didn't get to. You will. Oh, I will. But at the same time, as you know what happened in my dad's situation, it was time. It looked like he was getting better. And then Jesus came and took him. Things got real good. It's like the two guys that were standing at the funeral of their best friend, and they go by the casket. And the one says, man, he looks really good. The other one says, he should. He just got out of the hospital. You stuck around for that extra two minutes and you paid for it. Now, uh, here's the last thing I want you to see. Go back to Philippians chapter 1. And I just want to share one thing that jumped off the page. I've never seen this before. It is so cool. Look at verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your what? You remember where we talked about last week? God's not expecting perfection. He's wanting to see you increase in these things. Progress. Paul said, I am coming back to work with you guys some more, and I want to see your progress. This past week, I was up in Michigan, as I said, and it's a church, actually, that has brought me back on a regular basis quite a bit. You'll hear me say I was in Michigan. I was in Michigan. Uh, and I go to different churches in Michigan. I'll be back again there in August in a another part of the state. But this church uh, outside Detroit... Uh, has, uh, it's a non-denominational church that has elders, and they realize since they don't have any uh, associational affiliation, they really don't have anybody over them. And they've asked me to kind of be their overseer from an outside to come on a regular basis and talk with them and meet with their elders and kind of guide the church. I don't tell them what to do. I just kind of keep pointing them to God. I had the best time this week, though, when I was there. They've been through some stuff. But I saw growth in these people. It was amazing. And I had to pull the elders aside and say, you might not see it because you can't see the forest for the trees. But wow, the people here, there's an atmosphere, there's a, there's a growth, there's progress. They go, really? I'm like, more than you'd be, you would ever believe. And I got a little taste of what Paul does 
in my life. As I go around, and it's fun to see the progress. That's all I'm going to ask you. If someone's watching you over time, it might be your neighbors, might be your coworkers, might be your boss, might be your spouse. Are they seeing progress? It's all God's working on. Stop expecting perfection. Let's see progress. Father, again, thank you for the chance to open your word. Thank you for Paul, and thank you for rejoicing. In and of ourselves, we can't have this attitude. We are of the flesh, apart from your spirit being within us, and apart from you, we know we can do nothing, yet we forget. And so, Lord, my prayer is, is that we would take root and, and deep faith and belief in you and what you've done and what you're doing and what you will do, and that the things that we say about other people, like when we say, hey, God will get you through, God will take care of you, God will meet your need, Lord, when we believe those things about us, that you will take care of us, you'll get us through, you'll meet our need. And Lord, may that faith manifest itself in obedience, in your power, so that it'll be easy for us and others to keep preaching the gospel because of what you're doing in our lives and through our lives. And Lord, I thank you right now again for what you've done in the years in our family through my dad, I look forward to what you want to do at his service. Take care of all the things that are needing to be done in the time period between now and then. And I thank you that you will. But Lord, I thank you for brothers and sisters who've come alongside of us in this journey. Who encourage, who send a text or a phone call or a Facebook post or an offer of food or all these things. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the way you've designed the body. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. In your name we pray. Amen.